The preaching of God's Word, as noted, is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 14 through 21. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 14 through 21. We've read the whole of this already here to focus our thoughts. The first few of those verses from 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 14. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. The Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers rising up betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. And so on. As noted earlier, we hope this evening to begin a series on the book of Ezra. We likewise noted that we start here in Second Chronicles because it gives to us the background of what Ezra faced in his own life and ministry. In fact, you can notice the connection between these two books when you look at the final verses of Second Chronicles 36. Notice verse 22 when it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, and so on. If you look at the opening verses of Ezra, you'll see this connection. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, and so on. It's a purposed a connection. It's a statement saying that which was left off at Second Chronicles is picked up and continued in the book of Ezra and its very near cousin, the book of Nehemiah. Second Chronicles ends with a record of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in the years 587 and 586 B.C. This was done under Nebuchadnezzar II. The very last verses, 22 and 23, record the first work of rebuilding the temple and city under Cyrus roughly 50 years later. And so between, as it were, verse 21 and verse 22, or we could say between Second Chronicles and the book of Ezra, we have a span of 50 years' captivity. And this, of course, is the high point of that captivity. There had already been several exiles taking place. Already, several of the Jews, many of the Jews had been put here and put there and so on. But this is the high point, or perhaps better, the low point of that season when the temple is destroyed, the city is destroyed, and all those who remained are cast out. These verses are important for us because whereas Ezra gives us a record of the Lord restoring and reforming His cause, it gives us the reason there was such a need for reformation. And when we hear the term reformation, it's right for us to think back to the 16th century and think about that wondrous work of God. But it's also right for us to see that God has had many reformations throughout history, not only in the modern era, but in the biblical record. In fact, we saw this very slightly hinted at when we read from 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 1, when mention was made of Josiah. There was a glorious reformation under the king Josiah, and yet we see that in the Lord's providence it was not intended to last long, his own descendants being those who would be instruments to turn aside again from the way of God. And we could track and see reformation throughout. It's important for us to see that reformation is God's work. Though He employs men, though He employs the church, yet it's God who does that. And you can see that in the verse that follows, verse 22, when it speaks of the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, so God had a purpose. And it's Jehovah who stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and who would stir up the people of God who were there in exile. It's God's work 
to reform His people, to reform His kingdom, and to prosper His cause. Ezra records part of that work of reformation. Ezra gives us, in other words, a biblical record of what biblical reformation looks like. It shows us that it's not easy. It shows us that it self-sacrifice, much faithfulness, and it's not an unchallenged work. That there are challenges that come to Reformation not only from the sworn enemies of God, but is often found among those who profess to follow God. And so it's helpful for us to see in the pages of sacred Scripture how it is God reforms His cause. Now, as we do so, we're reminded as we look at this passage that the need for reformation comes because of a previous deformation, a desecration of God's kingdom. For something to be reformed, it, of course, implies that it was earlier deformed. And this is what we find in summary fashion before us in Second Chronicles 36. If we were to look through all of Second Chronicles, we'd see various moments and seasons of encouragement and help and a healthy state of the church, but we'd see many seasons of compromise and declension. And what chapter 36 gives us is that final and rapid decline into all manner of open wickedness and abomination, not which are necessarily new, but which are, as it were, unrelenting. And so there's a steep decline among God's people. God brings forth His judgment and then has His people in captivity. All of this is helpful for us in this way. As we survey the world of the church around us today, what we actually find is much of the things that brought God's rod against His people are actively uh, practiced in the visible church today. We'll see this. This ought to make us connect things and say, if God then was incensed against His people for those things, and those things are being done today, what hope do we have unless God gives repentance and causes such reformation to take place? To give us a glimpse of these things that we'll see, notice Isaiah chapter 58. There's a record of Uh, the sins that were being practiced that were leading up to this season. Isaiah in chapter 58, you'll notice at verse 1 and following, Isaiah said, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. And as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Do you notice something? God is appointing Isaiah to proclaim and declare the sins of God's people. But the overwhelming majority have this outward display of piety. We like God. We're seeking God. You don't have to come to us and tell us about our sins. This is something for us to consider. It's not the voice of the visible church that is the testimony of the church's health. It's the voice of God which tells us accurately whether the church is healthy or not. You can see this as well in the book of Jeremiah and chapter 38, again, leading up to this very season that is before us, Jeremiah and chapter 38. Uh, Notice at verse 3. Here's Jeremiah prophesying. He says, This city shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore the princess said unto the king, Look at this for a moment. A prophet is testifying authoritatively what God is to do. You would think that anyone with a semblance of of wisdom would say, we ought to abase ourselves. But instead, notice what the princes do. We beseech thee, let this man be put to death. For he 
Thus weakeneth the hands of the men of war that remain in the city, and the hands of all the people in speaking such words unto them. For this man, Jeremiah, seeketh not the welfare of the people, but the hurt. Of course, verse 6 records the casting of Jeremiah into prison. And yet one more in Ezekiel and chapter 38. Notice God commissions Ezekiel and he says, Son of man, set thy face against Gog and of Magog, and so on. And he says at verse 3, Say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, and the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, and so on. The testimony of all that's going to come up to pass against these things. And here we have the historical record of it taking place. Well, brethren, what this shows to us is that God will not be mocked by even His people in their continuing in sin against His Word. What we want to look at today is how it was that God's kingdom was desecrated. When we hear that term, it's a big word. It's full of weight, desecration. We don't reuse that word lightly. We may be tempted to think the desecration was simply the king of the Chaldees who slew their young man with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. And that was a form of desecration. But the worst form, indeed the worst form, was that which was committed by God's covenant people who took the ordinances of God and compromised and made them look like the world's ways, who continued in the course of sin. This is what it was to desecrate and to profane God's kingdom. This is what brought to pass the severe judgment of the Babylonian captivity. So consider then three things in our preparation for our consideration of the encouraging work recorded in the book of Ezra. Firstly, consider what was the desecration. Secondly, how was the desecration brought to pass? And thirdly, to what end was this desecration? What was it? How was it brought to pass? And how did it end up? So then, as to the first, notice what was the desecration. Another way of saying is, what was desecrated? Notice in this passage what's recorded. Right before our passage, we see the king turning and rebelling. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. But notice verse 14, our passage, tells us that all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. This was a particular note given by God to his people early on in their history. That when you're in the land, don't ask, how is it that they and my neighbors serve their gods? They were called from the very beginning to give attention to the law and to the testimony. This alone is your guide. This alone is to instruct you. But here is what shows forth the desecration. What did the chief priests, not only here but previously, do? Well, we're told that they, with all the people, transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen. They looked at the nations around them. When we hear the term heathen, we can't separate it from that moral implication. But the word really just means the nations. They looked at the customs. They looked at the habits of the nations. And they started incorporating that into the worship of God. They started saying, well, look how they do it. That shows forth some degree of piety. I've got cousins now by marriage. Perhaps I've married a pagan. And I have family bonds. Why can't we just sort of bring this in? into God's worship. They were learning God's worship not from God's Word, 
but from God's enemies. Now, brethren, this is noted in the list of offenses that brings forth this judgment that there was such wrath of the Lord that arose against His people that there was no healing it. There was no remedy for it. Here's something for us to consider in our day. We think, as a people generally, that principles of worship are sort of secondary. We think that, well, you know, everyone has their own little approach to worship, and this is this tradition, that's the other tradition, and here's another way, and, well, you know, this is how Presbyterians do it, this is how Lutherans do it, and this is how Roman Catholics do it. Whatever the case about who does what in what way, understand this. The Lord expects His people to learn the way of worship strictly and solitarily from His Word. No additions, nothing brought in, nothing transported. And so when in God's worship customs are established, ordinances are transformed, and the justification is this has a long-standing heritage, this is how grandparents did it, this is how forefathers did it, this is how the early church did it, brethren, we have to see none of that amounts to any way satisfying what the law of worship is. God doesn't look down from heaven and say, oh, because it's a long-standing abomination, you're excused. Because it's been for many generations, you don't need to worry about it. He looks with much long-suffering at it all, but He detests the mixture of profanity into His pure worship. There is no right way of adding to God's worship except it be by God's explicit Word. Any other addition is a desecrating and a profaning of what is pure and holy in the sight of God. And if someone says, what's the big deal? You worship God this way, I worship God this other way. We say, here's the deal. It's important to God. God is the one who has instructed us in these things. It's He who has said that it is to the law and to the testimony that if we speak not according to that, it's not because we're wise and sagacious. It's not because we're well-learned in culture. It's because there's no light in us. When Christ commissions His apostles to go forth and establish His church throughout all nations, He doesn't say, listen, this is the tactic you need to take. Start to learn how they did things and then find good bridges and bring it into their land and carry that back into My kingdom. He says, go and teach them to observe what? All things whatsoever I have commanded you. This is a long-standing complaint of faithful men that when corruptions enter into God's worship, they regularly answer with this, well, this has a long-standing heritage back to the 2nd century A.D. You know, I can cite church fathers who did this, and I can fight medievalists who did, cite medievalists who did that, and I can say, look how long this practice has been established. But those who understand God's zeal for His worship raise the essential question, where stands it written in God's Word? Because if it doesn't have that, it loses the only warrant for us to do anything in God's worship. This is not anything new in 2 Chronicles. It was established very early in the history of God's people. You see this in the book of Leviticus in chapter 10. Here, on the heels of an elation among God's people... Offerings are being offered. The people are rejoicing. The glory of the Lord appears unto all the people. What do we find Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, doing? Leviticus 10, verse 1. They took their censers, and as it says, they put fire therein, put incense thereon, and offered strange fire 
before the Lord, which he commanded them not. The Hebrew is important to understand. The Hebrew is not saying he commanded them not to do it. The Hebrew is saying he never gave them a command to do this. They were without positive warrant to do what they did. And what happens? God doesn't say, Oh, thank you for inventing new ways of worshiping me. Oh, thank you for showing forth your sincerity because that's all that matters in my worship is sincerity. He doesn't do any of that. There's divine judgment meted out. There went out fire from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. Moses is their uncle. And what does Moses say to Aaron, Moses' brother, Aaron, their father? He says, this is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. When you come near to me in worship, you remember this. I will be sanctified by you. And yet today people look and they say, you know what, what's the big deal? You know, there's not fire going out from the Lord on all of these occasions anymore. There are people dropping dead and so on. Well, think of that for a moment. We have these important messages that are shown forth by action at very important seasons of the Lord establishing things. Here it is. He's establishing these forms of worship. And so there's judgment meted out. What happens in the early church when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the church? They drop down dead as judged of God. We don't find that happening at all other occasions, but it's a sign saying, my word is serious. And you risk the same judgment if you proceed to do as these against whom my judgment has fallen. But the principle is here. When we draw near to God, we are to be sanctifying God as God. We don't come up with creative things. We don't just look for historical resources. We search the Scriptures and say, if I'm to worship God rightly... Not only do I need a right heart purified by the blood of Christ and faith acting upon the one true mediator, Jesus Christ, I need to be offering things according to His Word. And that alone. Many people pay lip service to their appreciation of John Calvin. They love to call themselves Calvinists. They love to talk about the doctrines of grace. We love to talk about the doctrines of grace. But it's little acknowledged today that when Calvin wrote to the emperor, he said there are two things that need to be redressed. There are two things that need reform. You want to know why we say the church needs to be reformed? I'll tell you the two greatest things. And the first of the things that Calvin notes is this, that the ordinances of God's worship must be reformed to be administered strictly and solely according to the Word of God. That's number one. It's this which most earnestly and intimately is attached to the glory of God. This is what needs to be reformed. So when you hear people saying, oh, I'm a reformed this, I'm a reformed that, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm reformed, and all they mean is that we hold to the doctrines of grace, you have something half-baked. Because the Reformation, as all biblical reformations, begins with a reforming of worship according to God's Word. There's no Reformation at all without the Reformation of worship. That when that has deformed, that must be reformed. And it's intriguing, isn't it? That when God raises up Ezra, what gets reformed? Worship. And so his worship is desecrated. His word is desecrated. Notice in verse 15, the Lord God sends his messengers, the prophets, and he does this for many years. They're warning, they're exhorting, they're reproving. 
We saw it with Isaiah, we saw it with Jeremiah, we saw it with Ezekiel, and we could look at many more prophets beside. And though this happened for years and generations, yet what happened? That while God was showing compassion, saying, Oh, listen now to this one, listen now to this one, they mocked the messengers of God, and they despised His words and misused Him, the prophets. And so God would raise up men and they would preach and proclaim and declaim against the sins of the first table and the second table. And his people would say, you know, we don't need any of this. We're fine. Look at my farmland. It's rich. Look at my house. Not just my summer house, but my winter house. I'm doing fine. The economy's rocking and rolling. Everything's going well. Don't bother us with all of these words of reproof. Speak to us words that are peaceful and good and encouraging. But you see, God is calling His people to repentance. To say, you need to trust My Word. You need to obey My Word. And what did God's people do? Look around, Isaiah. Look around, Jeremiah. Everything's fine. Why are you bothering us about this? We carry on as we've carried on forever. You're the innovator. You're the troubler because you're calling us to undo all sorts of traditions that stem back for several generations. Isn't it interesting that Christ's disciples were reproved for not observing the tradition of the elders? What did Christ say to that? Oh, you know what? You're right. You know what? Disciples, get with it. Start being on track and honor the tradition of the elders. He comes to them and reproves them and says, Why do ye transgress the commandment of God in observing your traditions? Because as you let in these traditions, you necessarily push out God's commandments. Anytime we let into our piety what has no divine sanction, we necessarily push out something that does and is demanded of us. When men cry up tradition, when men cry up longevity, it's interesting, they cannot cry up God's Word. They cannot say to God's Word, look at God's Word. It's amazing how people will die for tradition and yet bemoan God's Word. Notice as well, well, we could multiply, but we must press on, that ultimately what was desecrated was the authority and dominion of God. This is the same thing that we witness today. When the ordinances of worship are desecrated and profane today, what's going on? It's not someone doing something against a church. It's someone doing something against the king. That when we take his ordinances and corrupt them, we're taking the king's ordinances and profaning them. So think about this for a moment. Who instituted the Lord's Supper? Wasn't the church? Wasn't the apostles? It was the king. Who instituted baptism? Wasn't the apostles? Wasn't it the church? It was the king. And when a pastor or a church, a congregation or a denomination starts to mess with them and profane them, who is it that's being dishonored? It's Christ. When we see corruptions in the Lord's Supper, that's a desecrating of the King's ordinance. Think of it this way. It's not a tradition, man-made tradition, that there be serious warnings before coming to the Lord's table. That's God's Word. Christ gives it to us in His Word that we're to examine ourselves lest it is we eat and drink judgment unto ourselves. That's not us making up something. But there are boatloads of churches today that have zero concern about it. And when the Lord's Supper is administered, they just say, everyone take it. Go ahead and have it. It's quite different than when it was that John Calvin took his arms and protected the Lord's Supper from profane men, that they would dare profane the ordinances of Christ. The church today is just handing it out to everyone. 
There's uproar at times. It's, it's laughable if it were not so serious. When there are debates, for instance, about Roman Catholic bishops and archbishops saying of the president, well, you can't take the Lord's Supper because of your stance on this. Of course we say he shouldn't. But what about the very Roman Catholics who have corrupted the Lord's Supper from their inception of rebellion against the king? They're profaning it. They've added corruption to it. Their whole church is a mockery of the purity of Christ's kingdom. And then Protestants start to jump on this and they start to say, yeah, they should be kept from the Lord's Supper. Brethren, we're missing the point. It's not the most egregious sinners that should be kept from the Lord's Supper. That's not the main point. It's that the ordinances must be administered purely. They must be administered according to God's Word because there's a marriage between His worship and His Word. And all of this is in submission to and out of obedience to and out of faith and in love to Christ Jesus the King. So what was desecrated? His worship, His Word, but ultimately the authority of God. How was it brought to pass that desecration came so comprehensively? There are implications in already what we've seen. One is this. There was a learning from the world. We saw this when we mentioned, of course, His worship profaned. How was it profaned? They, as it says in verse 14, transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen. They looked at the world and incorporated that into their worship. They looked at it and maybe they changed names. Maybe they added certain ceremonies. Maybe they took off the most egregious things. They brought it into God's worship. They were learning from the world instead of from the Word. Now, this is significant because in so-called seeker-friendly churches, seeker-sensitive churches, mega-churches, there is a purposed and deliberate study of how we can incorporate the things of the world and bring it into the church in order to make the church more palatable to the world. This is in grand defiance of God. This isn't an advance. This isn't something that's commendable. This is what the beginnings of and the fulfillment of desecrating God's ordinances is. It's looking at the world and bringing that into the church. When October 31st comes around this year, you can guarantee it without hesitation. There will be churches who will be advertising their trunk or treat. And they'll be saying, you know what, this is a great outreach opportunity. We can take Halloween and we can make it into an evangelistic tool. We can use it for the glory of God. Not realizing that the very foundations of Halloween are wicked. And we're not just talking about the ridiculous, demonic stuff that goes on today, but the liturgical calendar which has no observance in the Scriptures. People say, well, what we're really doing is we're returning to a tradition of the church. Well, you might be returning to a tradition of the church, by the way, which comes out not of Scripture, but out of the mind of men, but you aren't returning to Scripture. So we should see no, be, be not at all surprised when such things take place and though numbers can come in, there's no actual reform and purifying of the church because these things advance nothing of Christ's kingdom. It's the very thing that Paul was speaking against in the book of Colossians. Notice in the book of Colossians, And there in chapter 2, among other things, Paul is writing and he's speaking about the fullness we have in Christ and how we are complete in Christ and delivered from the vain additions of men. 
And he warns Christians, verse 18, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Catch this. Let no man, no mere mortal, whatever his pedigree, whatever his office, let no man beguile you. Now, what was it that took place when such men were beguiling them? Well, Paul notes in verse 23 that these things have, as it says, a show, an appearance of wisdom. These additions have an appearance of wisdom. You look at the world, you listen to men, and you say, that has some appearance of wisdom. It is astounding as a former Baptist to see how many Baptists are beginning to observe Ash Wednesday. Wednesday of that day comes around and they're walking around with ashes on their head. And the question has to be asked, where stands it written in God's Word that any such day should be observed and any such ritual should be observed? But the whole argument surrounding it is twofold. It's long-standing tradition, and so there's an appeal to others, and it has the appearance of devotion. I'm giving up things. And isn't it laughable and ridiculous what people give up for Lent? Oh, you know what I'm giving up? I'm giving up soda. You know what I'm giving up? I'm giving up television. I'm giving up Facebook for a week. I'm giving up Facebook for a month. As if this is somehow a devout service to the Lord. Brethren, these things, far from devout, are deplorable. There is zero, zero biblical piety in any of it. And here's the thing. It's not just in these wayward, independent groups. It is infiltrated so-called Presbyterian that there is a crying up of the there's the colors of the church year draped across there are vestments worn by so-called presbyterian ministers and all of this under the guise of it being reformed well i don't know what reformation it is that's being followed historically it's more in line with the anglican reformation but whatever it is in line with Not only is it not following the Reformation under Knox and Calvin and others, it's not following the Bible's model of Reformation. What it is following is it's following the trajectory of desecration. It's the way God's ordinances become corrupted. Because men are learning from men. They're looking at the world. They're looking at history and bringing that in. What do they do as well? They, it, it's brought to pass by resisting the Word. God raises up His prophets. And they resist the prophets. They despise the prophets. They ridicule the prophets. You can hear, you can read if you're familiar with these things, how people who are pro-church calendar, pro-high church, pro-holy days, pro-all of these observances as it's infiltrating the church, the words they use against biblical reformation is the very same stance as those who decried and despised the prophets of God calling them back to the ordinances of God. You can take it, for instance, with reference to psalm singing. You stand for the simplicity of what Christ has ordained. No, think of this for a moment. No man that understands the Bible, that even stands for the singing of hymns, ever makes the argument that God has commanded the singing of uninspired hymns. No one makes that argument. Do you know why? Because it's not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible is it ever commanded to us, you know what, of your own understanding, you can develop songs and write them and sing them. No one makes that argument because it's not in the Bible. 
But so soon as you say, well, therefore, you know what we're left to is the singing of psalms. And someone says, well, what about hymns and spiritual songs? Well, let's be clear. Neither Isaac Watts nor the most contemporary song leader today was in Paul's mind when he wrote those terms. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. But do you know what it was? The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, wherein you find all throughout the Psalter, a psalm of David, a song, a hymn, these titles that are used. And so psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is a common Jewish description of the Psalter. And so as soon as we start to raise this question, what are we commanded to sing in the Scriptures? Let's just ask, what says the Scriptures? The only answer that is ever able to be supplied is the biblical Psalms. There's no other thing commanded. Nothing at all. And so as soon as you bring this to someone and you say, listen, we need to return to the singing of Psalms, exclusively the Psalms. And they say, why? And we say, because God tells us to. They say, you're a little overzealous. You know, this would upend hundreds of years of uh, tradition. This would take from me such precious songs as I've sung from my youth up. This would take from me such things as my grandparents did sing, as my forefathers did sing. It may. In fact, it does. And many of us know the struggle of that very battle. But one thing it doesn't do is resist the Word of God. To maintain the singing of uninspired hymns is without question a resistance to the Word of God. Someone says, well, good Christians do that. We don't doubt, but that there are faithful men who are doing it. But it is not to their commendation. It is the testimony of their compromise. Does this mean we have no compromises? By no means. But what we're saying is this. We all need to realize that the way unto the desecrating of God's ordinances is when we resist His Word. If you and I have any sin in our life, and we start to protect it and hide behind this thought, many other Christians have done this, many other Christians do this, but we have no warrant from God's Word to do whatever it is that someone's coming against us, we are on the road to profaning God's name. In short, how the desecration of God's kingdom was brought to pass was by men walking by sight and not faith. It was by men walking by what seemed right in their own eyes and not by the Word of God. It was by not prizing God supremely above pastors and sessions and presbyteries and denominations and councils and creeds and so on above liturgies and long-standing traditions. Brethren, when you search the Scriptures, it is uncanny how similar these patterns follow again and again. Someone brings in something without God's Word. All of a sudden, there's a joining in with it by God's people. It gets rooted and established. God raises up prophets, cries against them. They're put to death. They're ridiculed. They're cast away. They're exiled. All these things happen. Until finally, either God snuffs it out and brings about true reformation, or He snuffs out His people and gives a season of suffering till they learn again that they would no longer learn of others and no longer resist His Word. Well, to what end was this desecration? Well, we could say this for a season. It was to much outward prosperity. Some of the high points of outward prosperity was in the very midst of the greatest wickedness and abomination among God's people. So here's a lesson for you and for me to realize. We cannot judge the legitimacy of ordinances, of doctrine, or of government by just looking outwardly and saying, how are things faring? But that was only for a season, and it was a testimony, as God's Word has already clearly stated, of the Lord's compassion and long-suffering. 
Parents know this. They struggle with it. They tell their children, this needs to stop. They give stern warnings. And then they bear with for a season. No, no, this needs to stop. And they give warnings. And they say, this is what's going to happen if you do it. And it happens again. This needs to stop. And why is the parent wrestling with this? It's because they're striving to show compassion. They're striving to be clear. They're they're praying, oh, that my child learn to prize my word. That I be spared from bringing the rod against them. But eventually, what does the father have to do? Son, daughter, I've told you here and there and there and there again. And you've not stopped. And so now the rod must come. Brethren, that's what's happening in Second Chronicles 36. This is no surprise. Isaiah prophesied of it. Jeremiah prophesied of it. God had said this. We actually read this uh, recently uh, in the Pentateuch as Moses is recording this. When you come into the land and you learn the way of the heathen and God casts you out, God said it from the very beginning. There's the warning. Well, what's happening at this season? God is bringing His judgment against His people. To what end though? Well, brethren, it's been a heavy sermon. It's, Lord willing, provocative of deep thought saying there's a lot of thought that we need to apply to what's going on in the church today. But understand this, as we'll see. The Lord brings the judgment against His people not to cast His people out forever. This is the message of Ezra. He brings the judgment upon His people so as to restore and reform them and bring them again to walk in His way. This ought to be our prayer. We pray, of course, God give repentance before such judgment and chastening comes. But what if it does come? There's all sorts of worries right now, like what's going to happen? Gas prices are so much that it takes $100 to fill up a tank of gas. Meat now is this price and that price and so on. And it's like the church is misguided. And they're saying, oh no, our nation, oh no, our nation, oh no, our nation. Whereas we really ought to be saying this, what is God's message to the church in this nation? What is the message to His people in this nation? We don't mean that God doesn't have a message to this nation, but we know, as the Bible records, He is first and foremost concerned with His people. And so the church ought to be saying, what are these messages coming to us? There's the whole debacle of the shutdown surrounding COVID. There's the whole debacle of our nation and its government. There's all of these things taking place. There's all of this stuff going on. And the church is looking at the nation saying, get your act in order. When God's finger is actually pointed at His people and saying, it's you who need to repent and get my house in order. I've given you my word. I've given you my commandments. I've given you my promises. And you raise your finger against this president and against this congressman and against this judge and against this people, when you aren't seeing it, my finger is placed first at you. Why does God do that? It's quite different than what the world thinks. It's actually because he's both jealous for his name and he's jealous for his people. Why is it, parents, that you're willing to look past, though it bothers you, the faults of other children and other families, but you won't tolerate it in your own household. It's because your children are more precious to you than others are. And so you'll, for a season, tolerate certain things in other children, but you'll actually say to your children, you're not going to do that. When you're with other people, this is how you talk to them. When you're in other places, this is how you behave, and so on. It's the same way with God. It's interesting. The prophecies that are raised up actually then start leveling out the Babylonians and the Persians and so on. It's not that God looks past the sins of the nations, but His first focus is upon His people. And His calling His people to repentance. And brethren... 
how much better it is for us to learn the message of repentance before the rod. Because if we don't learn the message before the rod, the rod will come. Mark this down. God never has been and never will be mocked by His ordinances of worship being desecrated. Never has been, never will. Though He's long-suffering, there is a time when it comes to pass that there is no remedy. And His rod comes. Brethren, we've not seen the rod yet. Most of us in this room will look at all of the stuff surrounding COVID and say, you've got to be kidding me. You think that's a rod? That's not a rod. That's a whisper. We don't know the slightest of actual tumult in our nation. We look at the horrible things going on in the Ukraine, which is significant and real, but we need to realize that's at most the tip of an iceberg compared to what the rod of God looks like against us. Brethren, when we trace all of these things together, what we should come to see is this. God is saying to His people, today, in this room, in other assemblies, I will not be mocked. I'll not be mocked by the nations. I'll not be mocked by my children. I will be sanctified by them that draw nigh unto me. And so He calls us then to repent. He calls us then to see His ordinances restored unto their pure integrity as delivered to us by our King. And brethren, if we as the church do not, though it passes our generation, know this, God will have His way soon enough. Brethren, we close then with this final word. It's a serious thing, the rod of God. But the rod of God is exercised for the restoring of the people. And the blessed message of Ezra is this, that though God was one who brought the rod, He also brought forth reformation and restored His people, which testifies of a word of encouragement in our day. Lest we depart and think upon those things that take place today and say, oh no, there's no hope. No, brethren, there is hope. Because just as God according to his prophecy, did raise up Cyrus, and by Cyrus raised up his people. So we have no doubt, but that God will raise up men in our day, or in days to come, which will see of God restored to the pure instruction of the King, and that to his glory forever. Would you stand with me then for prayer?